Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is going to be the passage of our message, and that is Haggai chapter 1. Find Matthew and go backwards a couple of pages. Haggai chapter 1. We're not used to going to Haggai. I can still hear the pages rustling. Haggai 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. This is the word of the Lord. Allison has told me the story of a homeschool group who would get together regularly at a conservation area to learn about the outdoors and be in the outdoors. The kids would construct different forts and teepees, 
only to return a few weeks later to find their building projects had been disassembled and scattered throughout the woods. So the kids would rebuild from the ground up. And the families would return a short while later only to find someone had taken everything apart again. They suspected it was the conservation staff. This would continue back and forth for several weeks until one time the families returned to find that not only had the forts been disassembled, but they were totally destroyed. One of the staff had evidently taken a chainsaw to everything. Ugh. Seems to me like missing the forest for the trees. In Haggai chapter 1, we have a different building project in view. On the decree of King Cyrus of Persia and the prophecy of Jeremiah, the Jewish people were returning from captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that laid in ruins. The old temple, of course, was filled with God's glory, the visible demonstration of God dwelling with and among his people. We are introduced to Zerubbabel, literally meaning sown in Babylon, who is the governor of Judah under the rule of Persia. We're also introduced to Joshua the high priest and, of course, Haggai the prophet. Ezra chapters 1 through 4 recounts how the people were faithful to begin reconstructing their city and reestablish their worship practices. The altar was built. The giving of sacrifices and offerings had resumed. The temple's foundation was financed and started. But then, partway through, the building project stopped. And a number of deterrents are provided for us in Scripture, but before we go there, let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you that we can come to your word this morning. We pray that by your Holy Spirit it would teach and uh, correct and convince us of who you are and the goodness of Jesus our Savior. And so we uh, commit this time to you in his name. Amen. So the Jewish people had paused the rebuilding of the temple. The project had come to a stop because of a number of deterrents, and the first deterrent we're going to look at this morning came from within, an internal deterrent, the deterrent of negativity. In Ezra 3, we read that the return of sacrifices and offerings had allowed the Jewish calendar to be restored. The people had responded positively by holding a worship service, giving praise and thanks to God. But then, in Ezra chapter 3, he writes this. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted for joy. Sorrow from the seniors. Negativity because the new temple was going to be nothing compared to the old temple, compared to Solomon's temple. Negativity because the glory days were evidently over. And this wasn't just a few naysayers. Ezra also writes this, that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. 
And so the building project is facing some internal challenges. It is facing the deterrent of negativity. It is also facing an external deterrent, the deterrent of intimidation. Ezra 4 tells us that the Jewish adversaries who lived nearby offered to help God's people with the rebuild. These were Samaritans that were intermingled and intermarried with deportees from other surrounding nations that the king of Assyria had brought in to repopulate the area. Hybrid and adapted religious practices across the board. And we know from Judah's past, as well as Israel, and maybe even by looking at modern-day Christianity, that where biblical truth and purity is compromised, corruption is not far behind. When Governor Zerubbabel, High Priest Joshua, and the rest of the leaders turn down their neighbor's offer, Ezra writes this, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. The Samaritans and other people of the land activated their political lobbyists with Persia to intimidate the Jewish people into a position of inactivity. So we have the deterrence of intimidation and negativity. And the third deterrent we'll look at this morning almost comes as a byproduct of the first two. This one also comes from within, from deep within the Jewish people's own hearts. It is deter the deterrent of self-interest. Look at Haggai 1, verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The rebuilding project had gotten sidetracked. The people had pressed pause on rebuilding the temple and instead were focusing their time, attention, and even their finances on their own homes. And not just building a home in which to live and raise a family to provide for them and protect them. These homes were being decked out. Paneling a house was the practice of laying wood paneling over the stone walls, a luxury of the day, and certainly not considered a necessity. Contrast that with the words of King David, who couldn't abide the thought of his house outwowing God's house. Remember what David said, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. All while the old temple is in rubble, and the new temple is barely started. And these three deterrents, negativity, intimidation, self-interest, will lead to an attitude or a spirit within the people that can be incredibly destructive. And it is a spirit that is tough to detect at first. It's tough to see coming. It's a silent killer a stealth assassin, the spirit of apathy, a lack of interest or concern, indifference, apathy. It is this attitude of apathy that ushers the Jewish people to a place where they are willing to downplay 
and even ignore the written command of the Lord to rebuild. Instead of obedience, the people choose to read and interpret their surroundings themselves to determine their next steps, to determine what the will of God is. The people ignore the authoritative and instead choose to follow the subjective. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come. Obviously, the prophets misunderstood this one. So did we. The project's not very impressive. Our seniors are being Debbie Downers. We're getting a ton of pushback, both politically and from our neighbors. Frankly, we have other things we can be spending our time and money on. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Building God's house can wait. We'll come back to it later when the environment's more favorable. The people were acting as self-fulfilling prophets, self-justifying their own priorities while suppressing the conviction of the written word of God. In our fallen human nature, we can be tempted to be apathetic about apathy. In Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes from the perspective of a devil named Screwtape who is coaching his young protege nephew named Wormwood about the art of tempting and trapping people in their sin. And he writes this. You will say that these, referencing apathy or slothfulness, are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And the enemy, from this demonic perspective, is God. He continues, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And that is often the case with apathy. It's not a typically a headliner sin. You don't hear of apathy recounted in dramatic salvation accounts. But apathy can be slippery and dangerous and that it so easily worms its way into our lives. There are no milestones or signposts along the way. We may not even recognize it until it is deeply entrenched. In his letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus, through the Apostle John, warns the church of Laodicea about apathy. He calls it being lukewarm. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And in Haggai 1, the Lord has a similar message of consequence for his people. Because of their apathy, his judgment is upon them. Haggai says in verses 5 and 6, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. 
You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The Lord, through Haggai, communicates his complete judgment on the priorities and the productivity of the people. Because of their apathy, they have misprioritized their pursuits and are misspending their time and efforts and finances. Simply put, this is now idolatry. So God removes his blessing and delivers a corresponding sweeping judgment. He judges their work, minimal fruits for their labors. He judges their food. They eat, but they are always hungry. Their drink, they're always thirsty. Their clothing, they're bundled up, but always cold. Kind of sounds like my wife. Their spending, they're using up their money quickly. And Haggai expands on this in verses 9 to 11, so that there is no doubt and no confusion on what the outcome is and who is bringing it. He writes this, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. See how God is directly involved. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Everything. Everything. All of the people's productivity and the earth's productivity to boot is under God's judgment because the people will not be productive according to his will. Apathy has consequences. I will spit you out of my mouth. God takes indifference seriously. He responds to indifference directly. Perhaps God, in his mercy, has provided us with milestones or signposts to warn us of apathy in our own lives. Perhaps our spiritual temperature has cooled a little bit. We have become indifferent to spiritual pursuits or to growth in Christ. We have been hardened or calloused against our own sin. Maybe we have made a habit of justifying our attitudes, of rationalizing our actions, explaining them away. Negativity. I just had to get it out of my system. I needed to vent. I have a right to speak my mind. Intimidation. We all have moments when we doubt and fear and maybe even capitulate. Fearing is part of being human. Self-interest. We all need a little me time. We need to treat ourselves. God has given us good things to enjoy. It would be wrong not to enjoy them. Perhaps we have failed to yield to the milestones or signposts. 
Perhaps God is now judging our apathy. Maybe we are spending our money in the wrong way, at the wrong time, or on the wrong priorities. Perhaps we find that though we should earn enough, the money bag has a hole in it. Maybe we find that we are always busy with something, but we see very little spiritual growth. There's lots of time for crafting, gaming, sports, scrolling the news. We may be sowing much, but harvesting little. As we mature as Christians, are we able to move away from our attachments, closer and closer to the heart and character of God? What should that look like? It may be helpful to look at another temple in Scripture that also laid in ruins. Unlike Solomon's temple, or even the rebuilt temple of Haggai's day, this temple wasn't much to look at. The temple was modest and humble, placed in a corner of the earth of very little reputation or fanfare. It was often mocked and belittled. This temple was ancient. You may even say it was prehistoric. Yet people flocked to this temple because of its message of deliverance and life. This temple even claimed that he would be destroyed but rebuilt in just three days. This temple is the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the glory of God who came to dwell in and among his people. Just like Solomon's temple, the Lord Jesus was also rejected, destroyed by his own people, no less. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Willingly nailed to a cross, suffering the just wrath of God, so that the sins of his destroyers might be forgiven. But he did not lay in ruins forever. After three days, he was resurrected in power to the fullness of life. This temple was, in fact, rebuilt, just as Jesus had said. And Jesus offers each one of us eternal life if we would only repent of our sins and receive him by faith. When we do this, Scripture teaches that we, the believer, become the temple of God. God, by his Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in us. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Peter says we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And when God himself dwells in us and is building us into a spiritual house, how can we miss the milestones or signposts he has set out for us? How can we be apathetic about his warnings to us? In Haggai, God, through the prophet, challenges his people five times in this short book to consider their ways. Consider your ways. And when God's Spirit dwells in and among His people, they don't just stop at considering. They respond. And they build. As God's people, they are compelled to respond. They are compelled to build. It is inherent to their nature. Look at verse 12. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Something clicked. The people understood through the words of the prophet what was happening. And this isn't just an intellectual understanding with the mind, recognizing the facts that their actions don't align with God's command. This wasn't just a mathematical equation that had to be fixed. This is an understanding of their own hearts, that their wills were rebellious and opposed to God, that they were setting their minds on things below, not things above, as we heard last week. The people saw that they had sinned. They had ignored, disobeyed the command of the Lord to rebuild the temple. They had justified their own disobedience. The time has not yet come to rebuild. They used their God-given resources for selfish pursuits, for pursuits of luxury. And because of these things, they were under God's judgment. This understanding of the heart is enough for God's people to respond and return to the right action. Haggai writes that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed the words of Haggai the prophet, and they feared the Lord. And when this repentance takes place in the hearts of God's people, God is swift to respond with messages of blessing and of encouragement. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Notice how once again God identifies with his people. In verse 2, God calls them these people. And now, in verse 12, we read that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And in verse 13, God says, I am with you. I am with you. And he enables them to do the work he has called them to do. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. When God's people repent, he stirs their spirit. He enables them to return to the right action, to do the work he originally called them to do, as challenging as it may be. Whether there is negativity or intimidation, or even the temptation towards self-interest, God both positions and enables his people to get back to work. And he supplies their needs to do the work. Lord of hosts is translated in the Christian Standard Bible as Lord of armies. It is a reminder of the vast, rich roster of resources available through the Lord of heaven and earth to his people. It is a reminder, as Paul would write, that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you are 
unsure if you can identify as one of God's people this morning, come to him in repentance and receive him by faith. Perhaps you have been unsure for quite some time. We would appeal with you to put away your apathy. Stop pursuing your own will, which the Bible teaches is in rebellion and in opposition to God. We're about to participate in the Lord's Supper, where we remember and observe that Jesus Christ, God in humanity, died for the sins of mankind so that we can be reunited with him in a right relationship. His sacrifice can be applied to your account. Humble yourself. Reach out to him in faith. For the believer, the Holy Spirit is working in all of us, building us up into a spiritual house. He teaches and guides, and he also corrects and rebukes. Proverbs says this, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Believers, we are now the house of God. Does your temple lie in ruins? Has the building stopped? Jesus said to the Laodiceans, to the lukewarm, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Amen? We are about to eat with him at the Lord's table, a service where we remember that he gave himself for us. Do you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus at the door? As a follower of Christ, it is not enough to simply hear his voice. It is not enough to only consider what he says. It is not enough just to consider your ways. We are compelled by our new nature to respond and to build. It is inherent to who we are in Jesus. We must respond. Hear the voice of the Lord of armies who will supply all your needs and consider your ways and open the door. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you uh, for this reminder that you provide for us uh, through your word. Lord, we are weak, and it is so easy to become distracted and to put other things before you. But Lord, how can we not respond to your word? How can we not respond to the Lord who gave us life by sacrificing himself for us? We pray that this truth would compel us to spring forward in lives that are oriented to you and to your will and that seek to love you and serve you in all that we do. We seek to do that at your table uh, this morning as we come to you in remembrance and thankfulness, and we pray that you would stir our spirits uh, to remember you in spirit and truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.